Todd is the founding bishop of Churches for the Sake of Others and the founding pastor of Holy Trinity Anglican Church in Costa Mesa. I've had the honor of working with Todd through She Leads. He was one of our presenters a couple of years ago, and I was so deeply blessed by his humble spirit and his teachable ways, even behind the scenes where there was a little um, misunderstanding or um, some folks in the gathering didn't quite hear what he was saying, and he responded in such a beautiful, humble way. And I was incredibly blessed not only by what he was saying from the stage, but by how he was living out the selflessness of Jesus behind the scenes. And I see that in so much of his work. He brings together a vineyard and an Anglican history, a beautiful combination of those two worlds. And uh, so I just can't wait to hear what he has for us today. Will you welcome Todd Hunter? Thank you and good morning. I was thinking yesterday as I was sitting in the back listening to all the first things that were happening yesterday, how, how much I love Miss Yo, and I, I tell JR this all the time, but it, it struck me that what I love about Miss Yo is, it includes what happens up here, but it's mostly you guys. I, there's just not a gathering like this, and I'm, I'm in gatherings all over the place, and there's just something unique about this gathering, and so, well, and I say I love Miss Yo, I, I love just the, the passion, the thinking, the, all that you guys bring into this room, so it's good to be with you. So the contribution that I've been asked to make this morning is to help us think about the intersection of sort of ancient future church and missiology. And the sort of enthusiasm that's around that, um, it's a bit trendy, I don't mean that in a negative way, it's, it's been a bit trendy for a number of years. Um, I think of this actually starting with what I call the long tail of Robert Weber, um, who I forget when, um, Evangelicals on the Canterbury Trail was published, but it's got to be, I don't know, 25 years or something. It's been a long time. And in a sense, Weber really probably does deserve the credit, amongst evangelicals at least, for rediscovering the ancient church and for rediscovering ancient practices. And then I remember about 20 years ago, when I was involved in a thing called a leadership network that Bob Buford led, and out of that came the emerging church movement as it became to be known. And in that time, I remember a lot of especially youth pastors who were really discouraged about ministry. Nothing cool that they were doing was working anymore. Like it's, they tried to make it as cool and culturally current as they could. And there was a genuine angst in these young pastors, many of them who, who were uh, youth leaders, and so somehow they, they sort of got in touch with the, the ancient church and started borrowing aspects of the ancient church and trying to bring them into their, uh, into their practices. And sociologists of religion today will note that there is a trend, uh, that there is a, you hear this probably all the time, there's a trend amongst young people towards orthodoxy, uh, sometimes towards Roman Catholicism, uh, but for Protestants usually it's towards uh, Anglicanism. And that trend is there. I mean, I don't think anybody doubts it. But it's not like the Mississippi or the Ohio River. It's more like a little mountain brook. You can see that it's there, it's observable. But it's really not that big of a thing numerically. I mean, still by far, you all see these studies, the vast numbers of especially new people who are going to church, are, they end up going to the big mega churches where there's programming that they want and that sort of thing. Now this big mega church might have a, a little service that's got some like token ancient future stuff in it. 
But, but essentially what's going on, it's real, but it's not enormous. But regardless of the size, I think what um, JR uh, wants me to do here this morning and the, our developers of this conference is to think what's appropriately underneath this thirst for the ancient future? You know, what goes beyond the kind of cherry picking of aspects of liturgy? And I don't mean that negatively. Uh, you know, new ways of doing public worship or, or people, I, I've heard so many people who discover the lectionary and think, oh, that's fantastic. Like, I don't have to make up sermon series anymore. You know, I can, I can just use the lectionary, you know, that sort of thing. Um, or making use of the church calendar, that sort of thing. But I think for our purposes here at Missio, there's a richer and more full line of inquiry that begs our attention. And to me, it's this question. What was the aim of the ancient church in practicing these things? And it was definitely not to be different. They weren't trying to be a counterpoint to the seeker synagogues of their day. Right, I mean, just think about it. Um, they weren't looking for a fresh marketing position. Um, their liturgies weren't the result of youth workers' frustration that nothing works anymore. I mean, obviously, right? I mean, as soon as I say it, it's like, that's obvious. So then, to what was the ancient church conscious? Right, like these practices came from a people. They're not disembodied things, they're very embodied things, and they were embodied both in a people and in a context, in this ancient context. So what was the purpose of the ancient church? And then what practices did they employ to live into this vision? Now to get at this this morning, I, I don't know how many of you have seen the book by Simon Sinek, I think is the way he pronounced his last name, his book called Start With Why. Have you seen that? It's actually, I think, a very important book. He's, of course, writing from more of a business perspective, but I think we can use it for an evangelistic kind of missional perspective. And his point is that most people who are trying to do anything start with what. And for us, of course, the what is we do church. And so when we think about our what, we tend to think of futures and benefits of our public worship. We, that leads us to thinking towards facts and figures, the kind of things George was talking about. And Sinek wants to say that these things do not inspire connectivity. They don't actually change behaviors or change practices. Or we might, you know, being sort of, at least for the world I come out of, being sort of a pragmatic evangelical, we might start with how. And uh, I come out of the Jesus movement, the 1970s Jesus movement, and Calvary Chapel, and Maranatha music, and Vineyard music. I mean, we invented what everybody thinks now is cool. And uh, I, we were just teenagers playing our music and, and doing what we do. I, I suppose there's a sense in which we were trying to be cool, but not in the way that we would think of it today. Um, we were just, you know, kind of being us. So you might think cool or loud or quiet or an emphasis on teaching or an emphasis on worship or an emphasis on the charismatic or an emphasis on Eucharist. These are all how things, but we rarely start with why. We rarely start with purpose or meaning. One of my very favorite um, authors on leadership is Max Dupree. And Max says in his book, I think it's Leadership is an Art, he says the first job of leadership is to make meaning. So simply borrowing practices from the ancient church without attaching meaning to them isn't actually gonna get you where you wanna go. The first job of leadership is to make meaning. 
So we typically most want people then to buy into the why we do what we do, only then the how. Some of you probably, of course, know Dallas Willard and would know of his book, um, Renovation of the Heart, in which he uses this uh, pattern of vision, intention, and means. And I want to apply that this morning just for a minute to this practice of ancient future things. That they're practiced best, best when they're practiced within the context of a vision of life in the kingdom as taught and modeled by Jesus. And they're therefore then being used to live out my intention that I actually have decided to arrange the affairs of my life to become an apprentice of Jesus in kingdom living. And then therefore then these ancient practices just become means to me, their rhythms, their practices, their disciplines that I need to carry out my intention to live into the purpose of the why of life in the kingdom. So then as we then name the way and that way of Jesus and the purposeful aims of God for the church, then I think that gives us a way to interact with ancient future practices, which were, I would suggest, created to faithfully engage spiritual formation and mission in the midst of ever-evolving cultural challenges. For instance, I don't know why anybody would have ever read this, maybe one out of 100 in this room, but in Thomas Cramner's preface to the 1549 prayer book, I don't imagine many of you have read that, Um, I've read it over and over and over again because it gives for me a kind of denominational pretext, you might say, for missional living. Because in, in, you you know, you might think of the prayer book as very wooden, right? And very um, kind of tight practices and not a lot of leeway. But in the preface of the prayer book, Cramner says, these things may be changed according to the exigencies of the times. That's Cramner. That's not some crazy church growth person. That's not some wacky new fresh expressions person. That's 1549 Thomas Cramner. Like these things aren't the thing. These things are means for people who have intended to live as apprentices of Jesus in the life in the kingdom because they see the vision of the inbreaking of God's kingdom in and through Christ and the reconstituted people of God, us, the church. That's the, that's the context, the best context I would say for this. So for instance, if you would look at our church bulletin at, at Holy Trinity in Costa Mesa, we have marginal notes because we know that most people who are coming to experience the liturgical service are in Southern California are doing it mostly for the first time. Or at least they're there once for the first time. So in our little marginal notes, we didn't seek to educate worshipers on like the background or date or author of a certain snippet of liturgy. We invited them into the why. So for instance, the little marginal note on our lectionary readings, it doesn't say, well, the, the Talmud says that these lectionary readings started with Moses. Or that, hey, we can trace these readings back to the third century. No, we said in our little marginal note, So I want you to feel this and and feel how at least we meant this to be imaginative and evocative. Our little marginal note says, as you hear these words, place your life in God's unfolding story, resting in him and listening for his will. The little marginal note on the sermon doesn't say, in Middle English, the word sermon means discourse and it's based on the tradition of public lectures by classical orators. No, our little marginal note on the sermon says, as you listen, ask the Holy Spirit, what truths or commands or encouragements or invitations is there for me today, and how should I respond? 
We sing the doxology every week in our church. And our little marginal note there doesn't say the doxology was written in 1674 by Thomas Ken. No, it says, let the weekly singing of these words, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above, heavenly host. As you hear this, or as you sing these words, we say, let these ground you in a way of life, of praise to God as his created ones, and gratitude for his constant companionship, blessing, and provision. So you see the pattern. In our church, we don't say the creed, We declare the creed as a remembrance of the story that the creed outlines. And it's a remembrance to remind us that this is the story of my life. This is the narrative from which I discover my truest self. We don't ever say the confession. We get on our knees and we do business with God. Agreeing with him about the state of our lives. I sometimes stand up in rooms full of uh, priests, Anglican priests, and say to them, you know, as the bishop with the purple shirt on, I'll say to them, I forbid you from ever again saying the absolution. And they look at me, of course, like I'm nuts. And I say, yes, how dare you ever stand up again and rotely read the absolution? Stand up because God gave Christ. And God saved us in Christ. And he forgives us and delivers us from our sins. Stand up and absolve your people in the name of God through Christ of their sins. People know the difference. People often wonder about how can you be sort of a vineyard, Jesus movement, Calvary Chapel, vineyard Anglican guy. Well, if if you've ever been in the charismatic Pentecostal church, you'll understand what I'm saying. When I used to stand on vineyard stages and pray over people or give words of knowledge, like I could feel the spirit working through me. As an Anglican priest, I've never felt the Holy Spirit working more strongly through me than when I stand up and I absolve the people of their sins. I can feel the spirit, the same vineyard, you know, Calvary Chapel spirit. I feel that same Holy Spirit working through me. Or when I stand up and give the benediction, I'm never just saying the benediction. I am saying, may the Lord bless you. May he cause you to prosper richly this week in every good spiritual gift there is in Christ Jesus. And may the Lord keep you. May he guard you and protect you and watch over you and all whom you love. And I just go through that benediction. I've done it every week now for almost 10 years. And every week, I feel the spirit working through me. I am not saying the benediction because that's what you do in a liturgical church. I'm doing ministry. Are you feeling me? I'm not just doing some ancient practice because it's a cool thing to add to an end of an otherwise, you know, evangelical service or something. I'm, I'm doing ministry. So then if we think of Cynic's why-oriented questions, what was the purpose of the ancient church from which these forms of worship and prayer came? And I want to suggest that they were trying to follow Jesus and they were trying to foment the Jesus movement. They were actually trying to become the reconstituted Israel, whatever the heck that meant. You know, Jews and Gentiles together. And they were doing this because they knew they were meant to be God's servants on the earth, Genesis 12. So they were on this dynamic learning curve in which the spirit and the community were real. And so then, for instance, they read the story of the Bible every year with the hope that it would become their story. We now call that the lectionary. But they weren't doing the lectionary. Are you feeling me? They were reading their story. 
and then reminding each other year after year as Jesus in Luke 4 was handed the reading for the day, right? He stood up and read the reading for the day and then, of course, blew all their minds by saying, well, this reading is fulfilled in me, right? And, and that's the part we pick up on. But Jesus was just doing what you do in the synagogue. He was reading the weekly lesson. But he was, he was saying, and that's a way of saying, in the same way that Jesus said, this is my story in Isaiah, we read the lectionary readings to say, this is my story. Well, what was their cause? Well, they were trying to be ambassadors of the kingdom through the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. They were trying to discern and work with the rule and reign of God that Jesus said was breaking out in their everyday lives. And so they learned to do a thing that we call the prayers of the people. But the prayers of the people are really just a way of learning to love your neighbor and your enemy. When I first became a Christian and Barack Obama was, uh, I'm sorry, first became a Christian, first became an Anglican, and Barack Obama was, <laughs> was president, I, I live in a place where, you know, he wasn't everybody's favorite. And I used to love that every week in the prayers of the people, you had to pray for him whether you like it or not. <laughs> and now all the Trump haters, they got to pray for him whether they like it or not. Because that's what we do. Look at me. Loving your enemy includes your political enemies. And in my church, you're forced to learn to love your enemies because week in and week out, we have this thing called the prayers of the people where we're trying to align our hearts to the great command to love God, love our neighbors, we love ourselves. Our neighbor sometimes includes our enemies. And then we're trying to love our neighbors, we love ourselves. We're trying to live into both the, sort of the great commandment and the great commission. And the prayers of the people help us do that. So what was their core animating belief? I think it was something like this. Jesus is still alive through the Spirit. We're his people trying to live into his teaching. We're trying to carry on his mission of healing and deliverance. We're trying to become the sort of person that he was. And this is why every week they invoked over both their Eucharistic practice and themselves the presence of the Spirit and said, come Holy Spirit through Eucharist. Every week when I stand behind a table and say, bless now this bread and this wine, and bless us, I mean, technically that's called an epiclesis. It's a calling down of the Spirit, both on the table and the gathered community. So week in and week out, just like we did in the vineyard, we evoke the person and presence and power of God on our celebration and on ourselves, giving ourselves to Him. So my experience is this, that merely doing some ancient future practices, it doesn't automatically lead to missional practices. I mean, think about it. The synagogue services were the only option in Jesus' day, and they were nearly, nearly identical. And they produced Herodians, Zealots, the Qumran, Pharisees, and Sadducees, and those who positively hated the Samaritans. So doing liturgy, like if you think you're just going to borrow some ancient future practices and it's going to somehow magically improve discipleship or something, it doesn't. It's just trust me. What's magical is seeing a vision for life in the kingdom as an apprentice of Jesus, intending to do that, and then seeing these spiritual seeing the elements of liturgy and sacrament as spiritual practices, which help me in my intention to live into the vision of being a follower of Jesus in his kingdom. So I think asking first this question, why, is a question that can then help us ground 
these ancient future practices in the heart of the church from which this liturgy emerged. Amen.